you're wondering where Bill Parker is this morning, Bill Parker uh, sends his regrets. His, his brother-in-law has been very sick for quite a while, and so I kind of got the call that his brother-in-law was not going to make it through the weekend, so he's on the road. But another one of our elders, you might recognize him as, uh, you know, yes, Slash from Guns N' Roses, but he has also had a, a change of heart. And uh, Kirk, Kirk Hammett has, from uh, Metallica has gotten saved and come back as Rob Elkins. So Rob's going to pray for us before we start this morning. Father God, I thank you for my brother Paul. Clear space in our hearts this morning for, his, for your word to come through Paul to us. Uh, as we um, try to grasp eternity in your eternal perspective, your sacrifice, your mercy and grace, we thank you for that this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, brother. So if you've got your Bible, turn your Bible to John chapter 19, and if you're liking, how are we going to get through all this? Don't worry, we don't have a closing song. So, I know, some of you guys are like, don't cut the sermon. Some of you are like, cut the sermon, please. I'm going to sing. But we're in John 19, and we're, we're in the part, we're preaching to the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed that we're part where we are is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. So that's where we are, crucified, dead, and buried. And so we're going to be in John chapter 19, starting with verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said, let's not tear it, but throw dice and see who gets it. This fulfill the scriptures that say, they divided my clothes among themselves and threw dice from my robe. So that's what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple that he loved, he said, Woman, he is your son. And he said to the disciple, She is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. This, and then Jesus knew that everything was now finished. And to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked their sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus tasted it, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Jewish leaders didn't want the victims hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath of that because it was the Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their death by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. It is presented so that you can also believe. These things happen in fulfillment of the scripture that says, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on him who they pierced. Afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body down. When Pilate gave him permission, he, gave, he came and took the body away. Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night, remember that's John chapter 3, also came bringing about 75 pounds of embalming ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Together they wrapped Jesus' body in a long linen cloth with the spices, as is the Jewish custom of burial. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation before the Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I don't know if you've ever think about the word as parents. We think about the word a lot, and this word is dread. Um, I don't know about you guys, but dread is something that we say, you know, like, I dread the next time we have to do a science project because that means we're all going to be up really late. I dread EOGs because that means everybody's going to be stressed out. I dread, you know, dread is a real thing. And for the last decade, 
this time of the year, I would begin to dread something. And what I'd begin to dread was our Guatemala mission trip. And every year for, for eight years in a row, I led a trip to Guatemala. David Hammer and I went on that trip, and many of you guys have been on it as well. And I would begin to dread it, not because of the mission work, but because it's arduous. And not only is it arduous, but there is the chance of getting sick is huge. And so I would begin to dread it because I realized that like you get there and there's all these things when you're in charge that you got to have done. And then I begin to dread the idea of I'm going to have to get on this bus for maybe 12 hours to go to the other side of the country and there's speed bumps and your knees are into your chest and all this kind of things. But the thing I dreaded the most was getting sick. Uh, the second year that we went on that trip, both David Hammer and I got so sick, we did not, I did not literally think David was going to make it. David's comment to me was, stop on the side of the road, leave me on a tree, I'll figure out how to get back to Guatemala City by myself. That is sick, my friends. And I was just as sick, uh, and we felt miserable. And so every year I got a little, bit, a little bit sick, maybe not as sick as that time, but I would just dread it. And I'd just kind of get this pit in my stomach, like, oh my gosh, I know this is coming. And then, we're, and then after that, I know that's coming. And then after that, we're going to do this. And then after that, we're going to be here. And then that's about the time of the trip that I usually get sick. And then after that, and forget all that just for a second. Imagine knowing since you created people as God that you are going to give your life as a sacrifice for people. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, and if we take our, our misunderstandings and all of our misgivings about eternity, which we can't understand and we can't grasp our minds around, but from Genesis chapter 3, you get the pro-euangelion, which is the first part where the, the gospel is presented. But then later on, you get all these incredible descriptions in Scripture, prophetic description about what is coming for Jesus. The whole of Psalm 22 is amazing. And if you haven't read it, go back and read it. We're going to be referring to that. But these prophetic utterances that David has, they divided my clothes among them. They threw dice for me. My enemies are surrounding me like a pack of dogs. I'm thirsty. My mouth cleaves to the roof of my mouth, and I'm soaked up like sun-baked clay. They have pierced my hands and feet. Well, then you get to Isaiah 52 and 53, and you get to hear about what the suffering servant of Christ, the Messiah, is going to be like, and he's going to be whipped and bruised and beaten, and God is going to lay upon him the sins of us all. And so then when you get to Luke twenty-two fourteen, and you see where Jesus says, God, if it's possible, let this cup be passed from me, but if not, your, my will, your will be done. And then it says what? Sweat was mixed with blood dripping out of his head. This is before the crown of thorns. This is called dread. And he experienced his dread knowing what was coming, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And so there's three parts in the text, crucifixion, death, and burial. That's 23 through 24 is his crucifixion. 28 through 37 is his death. 38 through 42. And John wants you to fully understand how the Old Testament is connected. How we wouldn't call it the Old Testament, he would call it the Testament, but how it's connected to what is going on right here. And he wants you to do it. So you're going to see if your Bible has footnotes, look at those footnotes. You're going to, you're going to see them. It's, you know, it really goes, you know, you get Psalm 22, 18, Psalm 22, 15, you know, Psalm 69, 21. This has been said a long time ago. So when you look at verse 23, and we start to look at verse 23, verse 23, just you have to stop right there just for a minute, because they are operating in a society where if they said they crucified him, everybody goes, oh yeah, I know, I know what that is. We don't have that, so we got to come back and just stop just for a minute. So forget what you've seen in Hollywood, forget e e even what you've seen in some movies that we think are pretty good. Jesus would have been taken from Pilate's, from Pilate's palace and he would have been led up to the praetorium, and they would have given him the cross beam to the cross, not the up and down part, but the horizontal part. And it would have been roped onto him, or he would have been forced to carry it. 
The, the way there would have been circuitous, the whole idea with crucifixion is to elongate death, not for it to be quick. So we're going to refer to this a couple times. Crucifixion usually takes anywhere from 36 to 72 hours. But, it's, but they just, John just says, they crucified him. Well, what happened? When he gets to Golgotha, he's not, forget these ideas of that you're like, Jesus is on the top of a hill and the cross is 20 feet tall and he's way up there. His feet would have probably been about right here. Remember, they're not trying to like lift him up way high. This is why they, they didn't need some like telescoping rod to get you know, his, the, the hyssop branch up to him with the bitter wine. He would have been right there. And so you also see that when people are hurling insults at him, which you hear in Luke and Matthew, John doesn't record that, but that's what Matthew and Luke thought was important. They're not, he's not way up here aloof. He's right there. They're yelling at him to his face. You saved others. You call yourself the king of the Jews. He's right there. And so as his... He receives nails through his radius and ulna. Then he would have received one possibly through his feet right there on top of each other, but in a way to where he could raise himself up on the ball of his foot. I mean, you talk about like a calf workout. Um, But the reason is because crucifixion is not death by loss of blood. It's death by asphyxiation. So he's hung in such a way that he really can't breathe unless he pushes himself up. That's why later on you see they're going to come through and break the legs of these other people that are there so that the death will be quick. But so as we get there, we see him. He's still got the crown of thorns on his head. His back is torn open, and he can't even make it there carrying the part of the cross. And so we know that from from the other gospels that Simon of Cyrene was taken to carry the rest of him. That's how severe the beating was. And then he was there. Then they crucified him. So this robe that he wore, again, seamless robe, and this robe would have been knitted by or or made by a Jewish mom when her son went out into the world. So this was kind of like, I'm sending you out to the world, you're a man now. So in verse 24, John wants you to understand that there is an absolute direct connection to Psalm 22, 18. You know, it's it's not just that they rejected him, they revel in the rejection of Jesus. Then 24, 25, 26, and 27, I want you to look at the list of names and I want you to tell me who's not on there. Well, who is on there? Of the disciples, you've got John. Of the women, you've got the Marys. Mary, 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 Mary. But there's no other disciples that are there. And you, get, you and I understand this. The sting of lost loyalty is deep. No other disciples but John are there. Even, you know, Molly had a had a musical this past weekend, and, and all these people came, but these people that were her, like this, this, this group of friends over here, some of them didn't come. And that's the first thing she said, oh, they, they didn't come. Well, like everybody else did. She's like, yeah, but they didn't. Well, you know this. These are the disciples, and only John is left. Only John is there. But even in that verse, even in, in verse 27, Jesus, even in the act of dying, is still compassionate and caring and takes the care of others, and he says, my, my mother is going to be without her oldest son, John. She's your mother. Mother, this is your son. And now Jesus, who had been the one that was the provider, who had been the one that was the, the carpenter after Joseph had passed away, now he goes. And so Jesus, even in his death, is a loving caregiver. Verse 28. Verse 28 goes on to tell us that you know, he knew. He, he was accomplishing his purpose. And so in order to accomplish his purpose, he's got to say something. And so he says, I'm thirsty, but that comes from Psalm 22, verse 15. I'm parched. My tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. I've been, I'm baked like clay in the sunlight. And I have one last thing to say. I need something. So again, he's right there. And so having rejected the gall that they were going to give him earlier that would have dulled the pain, 
He now accepts some of the soldier's wine, which would have been weak, vinegary kind of wine, maybe alcohol content of like two or something. But he's only a few feet off the ground. And there in verse 30, he says this, tetelestai. Now, you guys are like, what is that in Aramaic? Tetelestai. It's where we get the word teleology from. It's this idea of what's the meaning of things. But tetelestai literally means it is accomplished. It was also used in other places where if you had bought something on credit and you couldn't pay for it, you couldn't pay for it, you're paying, you're paying, you're paying, or you had a debt where you're working, you're working, you're working, and then finally that thing, when you paid it off, it would be stamped to telestai, paid in full. And what do you think, what a strange thing for Jesus to say, don't miss this. He's telling you right now what he's doing. I have accomplished to telestai my purpose. I've accomplished it. I have done it. I have stood in the place, died in the place of these people. It's been paid in full. And I want you also to understand that we know from the harmony of all the gospels that this event took place at three o'clock in the afternoon. And you and I in America are like, so big deal. Do you realize, going back to John chapter one, and we're gonna talk about this, John The Baptist sees when Jesus is coming, sees him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. I want to tell you something about Passover. The Passover lambs were slaughtered at three o'clock on Friday afternoon, the exact time Christ is slaughtered, Christ is killed, Christ is murdered. And so again, in verse 31, we see Don't forget, crucifixion is not supposed to be this thing that happens quickly. It's a thing that's supposed to drag out. It's supposed to be a dragging on of pain. And so we're talking about 36 to 72 hours. But so as not to mess up Passover, they say, well, let's go ahead and break their legs so they'll die because we don't want to mess up Passover. Don't miss the irony. The reason for Passover is hanging on the cross. And they're going, well, we can't mess up Passover. That's kind of like bombing someone's house and going, did I mess up your Christmas party? In verses 32 through 33, they're going to hasten the death by breaking the legs, by asphyxiation, but Jesus was already dead. And so in 34, 5, 6, and 7, a lot of people make a lot of things about this whole, what was the water and what was the blood and was that symbolic of the baptism of the water? No, let's not go there and let's just say, first of all, the main reason why John would say this and then he would say, and there's a witness there and you can check and as a witness you can check and people saw it and you could check, is because people wanted to make sure that you knew that Jesus was dead. He had not just all of a sudden succumbed to a faint or passed out or whatever due to all this. He had died. And so the spear into his side actually goes and it fulfills what happens in Zechariah 12.10, but also what's going on in Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 tells us not one of his bones will be broken, but Zechariah 12.10 says, and they will look upon he who they have pierced. And so how incredible that is. And then verses 38 through 39, now we get into the burial part. 38 through 39, we have these secret disciples, secret disciples. It's kind of like when your kid starts playing one of those awful boy bands in the car, and secretly you're like, yeah, that's pretty good. But you better not say anything, or your friends will make fun of you. Well, this is even more than that. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are secret disciples. And the soldiers would have been at this point only too happy to give away the body. That means that they didn't have anything to do with it. They didn't have to figure out what to do with it afterwards. They're like, sure, you want this body? But also to, to remember, his secret disciples are there, but none of the other disciples are there. None. Rejected even in death. Disowned, disfollowed, unfollowed, even in death. And so part of this that I never caught before was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were fastidious Jews. 
following everything. There would have been people that would have been praying for the Messiah. There were people that would go to the temple whenever they could. They were definitely people that knew all of the steps and the ceremonies, especially leading up to Passover. And these two men make themselves ceremonially unclean because if you were a Jewish person and you touch a dead body, you're unclean for seven days. But guess what they said? I'd rather be with Jesus in death than participate in one more ceremony. I would rather be with Jesus in death than participate in just another ceremony. And so they brought, when it talks about they bring this, you know, myrrh and this anointing, they're not professional embalmers, but they bring $150,000 worth of stuff. They were men of means, and they're not professional embalmers, but as they do this, and this is verses 41 through 42, this is an act of love, y'all. They didn't, they didn't like take care of dead bodies on the side. You know, accounting's not really working well with me, so I'll be, you know, maybe I'll take care of dead bodies. This is an act of love. This is an act of sacrifice. This is an act of care. And we also think, too, that they probably, in verses 41 and 42, they didn't put him in Joseph of Arimathea's personal tomb. Do you know why? Joseph of Arimathea, a rich guy. A rich guy is not going to be in shouting distance of people that are wailing and dying on the cross. That's not where he's going to choose to be buried. He might be somewhere else where it's more peaceful and serene, but it was a brand new tomb. No other body in there, so they couldn't say, well, they swapped the body or there's nothing there. It was nothing in the tomb, and they put Jesus in there, so there was someone in the tomb now, and he was dead and he was passed away. But then Isaiah 53, 9 reminds us that he was buried like a criminal. He was numbered with the transgressors. So even in his burial, the Son of God is given just a burial among other people that have sinned and fallen short. So there's three short things that I want, to, want you to get out of this. And the first one is just simply this. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. As you look at Christ on the cross, you and I don't get it, but we have to come back and have a little bit of a reconnection to this. Behold the Lamb of God. And so if you understand, and we go all the way back to the first Passover, that is when the Jewish people have left, have left Egypt, they're coming out across, I mean, excuse me, actually, the first one is, is not that. When they're getting ready to leave Egypt, The Lord says to them, go into your homes, take a lamb. You're going to slaughter that lamb, and you're going to take the blood of the lamb and paint it over your doorposts, and be be all in the house, and you will be protected when I send my angel of death over. And so these people got to continue life by the shed blood of the lamb. And then from then on out, they, as the Jewish people, they said, we're going to remember this every year. We're going to remember every year, we're going to remember that the Lord saved us even when he took all the firstborn of Egypt. And so in John 129, where John says, John the Baptist says of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John wants you to absolutely get that that is what is happening right here in this moment. John wants you to know, the author of John wants you to know that when John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world, right here in John 19, that thing that he said 18 chapters ago is happening right now. Jesus, by his blood, the Lamb of God is taking away the sins of the world. Hebrew 9.22, if you want to go back and read Hebrews 9.22, just a very simple verse. There can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And you and I think about this as well. It's, it's the reason we have the death penalty right now. You kill me, you die. If you kill me, you're going to die. If you kill so-and-so, you're going to die. It's, it's, we kind of we go, what, what can take the place of what has been done? There's got to be some justice. 
And so going all the way back to what God would tell the Jewish people, every time they sinned, they would have to come to the temple to bring a sacrifice. And if you and I were to go back in Jewish time, we would constantly see smoke coming up from the temple because there was constantly people coming and offering sacrifices. Why? Because we're really good at sin. Like we can't go a half an hour without doing 12 things that displease God. What do you do if you live a life that way? Then you better have the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But why is it so brutal? Why was the cross so brutal? Why was it so awful? And, and I'll share with you a little bit, just in a tongue-in-cheek, of why the cross is so awful. It's the same reason of why I do to hornet's nests what I do to hornet's nests when they sting my children. Like, when my child gets stung by a hornet's nest, or by a hornet, I go out in the yard and I find where whatever it is. There was actually one time that I found a hornet's nest while we were hiking and it got everybody but me. And I went back just like something out of a Schwarzenegger movie. I picked up a huge rock and I carried it over my head. I walked up to the hornet's nest and just went, but that's usually not what I do. When it's in my yard and Hannah gets stung or Molly gets stung or Danielle gets stung, I sit there and wait with a lighter and an aerosol can at the entrance and I burn every last one of those. And you know how patient I am? Very patient. I yell down in the hole, any of y'all want some more of this? I'm here all day. And you're like, that's brutal, yeah, exactly. Because I know how much pain it causes. I know how awful it is. I know how terrible a hornet bite or a yellow jacket bite is. I know how terrible it is. Well, God is gonna say to you, you can never say that I don't get how bad what was done to you or what you have done is. I get how bad it is. It's so bad, sin is so bad, sin is so terrible that you know what I had to do to cleanse the world of sin? I couldn't just give anybody, no other blood would do, the blood of my son. And you know why he was brutalized? Because I want you to understand how awful sin is, how terrible it is, how it was never part of my plan. I want you to know that I get what sin has happened. And when you look at the cross, you can never say, God, you don't get what was done to me. Or you don't get what I've done. There's no way that Jesus Christ could forgive me. There's no way that his blood is enough. You don't know what I've done. And I want to go, go to the foot of the cross, and then you tell me. The voice that spoke into creation now is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, and it is accomplished. God is saying, don't ever say, I don't get how terrible sin is. What you have done or what has been done to you, I get it. And so that you could be with me in eternity, I gave you not only just the blood, I gave you the blood of the Lamb of God. So that begs the question, so what do you need to bring in your life to get salvation? There was an old evangelist, and a man ran up to him, and he said, I heard that you preach the gospel, and I heard that you tell people about Jesus. What can I do to be saved? And the guy said, it's too late. It's missed the bus, or whatever. It's too late. It's already been done. What do you mean? And he said, it was already done on the cross. Even you repent. That's it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. This is the part that hit me this past week, maybe the most as a pastor. The death of Christ on the cross exposes our propensity for the sinful denial of God's plan. No, I'll explain that. The death of Christ on the cross exposes our propensity for sinful denial of what God's plan actually is. John wants you to get this. John is so intent that you connect what has been said about Jesus hundreds and thousands of years ago with Christ's death. He's so intent that you understand this death, this sacrifice, it's been, we, we, we explained it. You knew it, was, you knew it was coming. Even going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 
about the, the dealing with sin in the very first place. I will send one who will be a son of man, and he will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will strike at his heel. Even talking about that, there's, there's pain that's going on. But when you read Psalm 22, and, and just, just by, by virtue of the fact that we kind of need to get in here and read a little bit of Psalm 22, this is David speaking prophetically about what's going on. And you see Psalm 22, Psalm 22 starts out with this simple verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think Jesus is not saying, I want you to connect what I was saying through David all those years ago? Look at what it says right here. And we get up here all the way into verse 12 of that. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. The fierce bulls of Bashan, they have me hemmed in. Like roaring lions attack, they pray. They come at me with open mouth. My life is poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count every bone in my body. My enemies stand around me and gloat. They divide my clothes among themselves and they throw dice from my garments. You get Isaiah 52 and 53, and it carries on even further. He will be wounded for our transgressions. He will be whipped for our sins, and by his stripes we'll be healed. It was the Lord's good will to crush him, and he laid upon him the sins and iniquities of us all. Like a lamb is silent before the shearer, he was let out, and so he did make no protest. But they crucified him. And then if we forget that that has already all been said about him, we just need to go back a couple of chapters and look at John 16 and 17. What does Jesus say? Hey, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you can't come. What do you mean you're going away? I'm going away. I'm gone. I mean, Duck Dynasty, he gone. But before you even go to that, let's just go to the most obvious one and let's go all the way back to Matthew chapter 16. And he turns around to his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, some say, and you can just, the dumb disciples are like, I don't know. You know and then, but Peter's like, you're the Christ, you're the son of God. And he tells them, and I tell you what, the son of man will be handed over to the religious leaders who will reject him, beat and torture him, and he will be killed. And in three days, he will raise again. Out of whose mouth did that come? Jesus' own mouth. We got all the Old Testament stuff backing it up, but here is Jesus saying, hey, can I tell you what the plan is? The plan is I'm gonna be tortured and die, and who's there at the foot of the cross? John, Mary, Mary, and Mary. Why? Even at that moment when he says it in Matthew 16, Peter says, no, 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 that's not gonna happen, and what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan, because you have man's thoughts and not God's thoughts. But you know what? Over and over again, as Jesus says, I must die, his disciples who were with him all the time never get it. And one of the greatest sins that we as people have is that we deny the very words of Christ and what he said himself over what we prefer that he would have said. We deny the very words of Christ, the revealed word of Christ, over what we prefer that he would have said. I was watching Ben Shapiro. I don't know if you, uh, he's amazing to watch. I've never seen anybody verbally destroy people in a kind way like he does. But he's Jewish. And, they, and they, 
We're asking him, why are you not a believer? And he he begins to just simply whip off all these things. Well, I believe that the Messiah would come and he'd be a military leader. And I believe that the Messiah would come and he would look like this. And I believe the Messiah would come and he would look like this. And none of that he was talking about was actually in the Bible. And he said, he would say, but I'm I'm a devout Jew. And I would say, but this is what God says. And you can even take Christ's words out of it. Here's what he says in Zechariah. Here's what he says in Psalm 22. Here's what he says in Malachi. Here's what he says in Isaiah 52 and 53. But it's so easy for him to push it aside. And here's the other part where you and I have to deal with our own sin. If God's plan had to do with the death of his son, and he was up front and he said, and by the way, I'm going to die. And his disciples were like, no, 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 uh-uh, can't be there. I, I can't believe this is happening. What does that say about all the other things that God has firmly spoken on? And we go, but God, I mean, if I was you, I wouldn't have said it like that. Yeah, I know this is what you said about that sin or that sin or that sin, but I wish that you would have said this. And so since I wish that you would have said this, I'm going to live as if you did. My friend, that's called denial. And that's what we as a, as a people are guilty of. And so when you look here at the foot of the cross, it's God's stated truth. I'm going to die. Here I am dying. His stated truth. And if God's stated truth and his very words offend us, then that means there's something in us that needs to change, not something in God that needs to accommodate us. There's something in us that needs to change. So I want to come back to you and ask you about the Bible. What in the Bible offends you? Does it offend you that Jesus says, I'm the only way to God, no one can come but through me? Does that offend you? What about like, this is what marriage is. Marriage is between one man and one woman, and that's it. Does that offend you? Does it offend you when, when he talks about like, you know, giving of your money and giving of your time? Does it offend you when he says, love your enemies? Does it offend you when you say, pray for those that persecute you? What, what offends you? And I want to say, if it offends you, that's not God's fault. If you're offended by the truth and what God said, that's something that you and I have to work out, not something that we go, well, hey, God, can you accommodate me? And so part of it is we all enter humbly into this and go, we all do this. There's so much that we, we, we wish you hadn't said, God. If we could, if we'd say it, we'd say it differently. But let's not exchange what God's revealed word is for what we would have liked for Him to say. And then this is it. Last thing: whatever you do, it is not worth doing unless you have Jesus. Whatever you do, it's not worth doing unless you have Jesus. And you're kind of like, well, that's a that's a pretty simple point. But I want to draw you back to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in verses 38, 39, 40, 41, and 42. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were these two incredibly fastidious Jewish men. Never missed, as far as we know, there are people that knew the word, there are people that knew the sacrifices, there are people that knew all these kind of things. They'd been praying for the Messiah, they had a desire to know the Messiah because that's what fastidious Jews do at that time. But I love this part. They were willing to be ceremonially unclean for seven days to be with Jesus in death to identify with him in death, not in victory, not in victory. They, they, weren't, even, they weren't even there on, the, on, on the, the morning of the resurrection. This is, I would rather identify with Jesus in death than anything else because they're getting ready to miss out on the biggest religious ceremony of the year. And they say, if I can't have Jesus, so what? And I don't know what their status was. I don't know if they, they had paid attention to when Jesus said I was going to rise again. I don't know about that. What I do know is, regardless of what everybody else thought about them, when it came time for them to say, who will take the body? And Joseph of Arimathea walks up and he goes, I will. I've been in the dark too long. I've been a secret disciple too long. And people are like, you're going to identify with them now? And he's like, better now than never. 
And the minute that he touches the body, he cannot go into the temple for seven days. But he says, you know what? If I cannot have Jesus, nothing else matters. And really, that's what the gospel is. It's what the gospel is. The gospel is, I'm betting my life that Christ's death, which led to his life and all other life, will mean that my death in Christ, identifying with him even in death, dying to what I want, what he said in Matthew 16, if anyone wants to follow me and be my disciple, they must take up their cross, die to their sinful self, and follow me. And I'm betting my life on it. I'm identifying with him even in death, the death of what my selfish ambition wants, the death of what my sinfulness wants. In my death, I'm identifying with Christ's death because if I can't have him, then nothing else matters. And you can't miss that part that everyone else is saying, hey, we gotta, we gotta break the legs of these criminals so we can get in there and have Passover. And what was it? Going through the motions. Going through the motions. Going through the motions, that's all it was. They didn't know that the reason for the Passover was hanging right there among them. They didn't know that they were crucifying the reason for the Passover. They didn't know that the actual Lamb of God was right there. They were rushing. They were like, well, they've already sacrificed the Passover lamb, so we missed that. So, gosh, we've got to hurry up the stuff so we can get clean and we can get in there for Passover. And Joseph of Arimathea says, what's the point? If I can't have Jesus, what does it matter? And so the part of this that's sobering is this. If you think that you're doing your good deeds for Jesus, if you think that you're attending church for Jesus, if you think that you're reading the Bible for Jesus, it's meaningless. It is only with Jesus that it has any meaning. Because if you don't have him, if you cannot say that I know that I know that I know that body and soul, heart and mind, I belong life complete to my Savior, who at the, to my Father who at the cost of his own son gave his life, if you just go, but I, I, I do good stuff. I like Jesus. I try to do good things for him. You don't do good things for him. You do good things empowered by him because you have him and because his spirit lives in you. So we're going to wrap up and just I'm going to pray and give you a short invitation. This is an invitation from your heart and your chair. But just that you, if you go, I've been going through the motions and all these ceremonies, but I never had Jesus. Just ask him. Just ask him. I believe that you're the son of God. I believe that you died and rose again. I believe that my life is found in you. Take it. I'm yours. And you will have him, not just before him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much. I thank you especially for my brother David who so rightly put, Lord God, that you're pursuing us. That when we call out to you, you don't stand there and tap your foot and cross your arms. You immediately respond. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would break into our hearts, break up the hard surface, speak to us, show us your will is already revealed in the Bible, Lord God. And, Lord God, your greater will than that is for us to be like your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives. Be glorified, be blessed. Lord, work in this church, Lord. We want to serve you in every area of the world. We don't want to be about ourselves, but we want to be about bringing your love and your grace, your mercy, your food, your water, your clothing to those in need. It's not about us. It is about you. So, Lord, thank you so much. Thank you especially for these incredible preschool families and their wonderful children. 
We pray your richest blessings on them. God, we pray for supernatural sleep for them. And Lord God, we pray for safety for those wonderful children as they continue to grow up. And we pray that they would grow up to know you and be your disciples. So it's in your awesome name we pray, Jesus. Amen.